And now we turn to the prophet Daniel, chapter 3. Many, many years have passed. The nation of Israel has arisen. The monarchy has been established, crested, and fallen. The people of God are in exile. Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down, and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These, then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, tri a lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, 
Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, we bow before you thanking you not only for your liberating law that liberates us from so much folly, but we thank you too for the testimony of your word that gives us so many examples from history of your people in their triumphs and in our failures. Give us grace, we pray, to hear and understand your word this day. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Our study of Deuteronomy, this book that is so essential to understanding the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, this book brings us today to the Ten Commandments, the very quintessence of God's moral law for humanity. It's not too much to say that human ethics, living every day and in every situation to please God, whose moral image we're intended to bear, human ethics all boils down essentially to these ten divine commandments. Grown-ups and those who aspire eventually to become grown-ups learn somewhere along the way to ask ourselves two very important ethical questions. The first question is this. How should I live my life? And the second, why should I care? Why should I care how I live? These two questions taken together form the basis for all our moral reasoning. Not just as the children of Israel, not just as the Christian church, but as members of the human race. Because rightly understood, ethics isn't a mere reflection of one's particular culture. Underlying such cultural differences as the different languages that we speak, the different foods that we eat, the different dress with which we clothe ourselves, those things that separate one nation from another, human ethical standards, rightly understood, are universal. Objectively speaking, if it's not right to worship idols here in Texas, then it's not right to worship them in Afghanistan or anywhere else in the world either. Objectively speaking, if it's not right to steal from your neighbor in Venezuela, then it's not right to steal here either. Because as we've already sung this morning, God is king of all the earth. And no man or nation of men has the authority ever to legislate otherwise. So, Every man born into this world eventually has to face and answer these two questions. And doing so is what separates the mature from the immature, or the men from the boys and the imbeciles. In simple terms, the answers that we give to these two questions are what shape and direct our whole life and Ultimately, our whole culture. How should I live? 
And why should I care? They shape a culture's arts and music, our literature. Our, they shape our approach to science and technology, our forms of government and justice, the education of children. They shape the whole economy of a civilization. What are the objective standards of thought and behavior, if there are any, and why should I buy into them? If you want some gauge of the power behind those two questions, you can think of them almost as the ethical mom and dad of any civilization. Like two parents working together, they exercise a tremendous influence on their children, either by their presence in the home or by their absence. If every new generation openly ponders these questions in good faith, working together to give good, sound answers to them, then it'll shape in a positive way what happens in that generation. But we need to ask the questions. And the answers we give will give our generation a distinctive, solid character. But if they're left out of public discourse entirely, these two questions, if we relegate these ethical questions to the category just of private belief rather than matters of public policy, then that absence, too, is going to be profoundly felt in the culture. And what happens when these questions are not directly, carefully addressed? What tends to happen and what we see here in our own culture is that religious pluralism rushes in to fill the gap. And every man does what's right in his own eyes. Because we don't know what's right and neither do we care. Sadly, we haven't, uh, we live in a generation that hasn't addressed these two questions in quite a long time, at least not in any uh, direct, careful way. And their absence from public discourse is apparent everywhere you turn. Whether you consider the state of our commerce, education, civil government, the media, sadly, even the visible church. Our society's ignorance and apathy regarding human ethics and our national refusal squarely to address these two questions is... Stunning. We do well to think carefully and deliberately through the fundamental issues of life and living, issues that really matter. As we'll see later on in this book, we have a duty to examine and critique our own religiously and ethically fragmented culture. very easy to draw these artificial party lines between people or groups of people and then cast aspersions on those who don't think as we do, who don't share our opinions. We see it every day in public discourse, don't we? Loud, opinionated people promoting unsubstantiated opinions and agendas and then viciously attacking others who don't share those same opinions. Now, people's opinions on how we ought to live, how we ought to govern ourselves, and so on, they certainly ought to be given their due weight. But inasmuch as they're just human opinions, they really don't weigh very much. The burning question is, objectively, what's right? What's objectively right? And why is it right? If people are afraid or embarrassed even to broach the question publicly for fear of being laughed at, 
then how can we expect people to know what's right? The coward's answer to that question is, what's right is whatever is right for you. But that's not a man's answer. That's a chameleon's answer. And it's a dangerous answer, isn't it, when you happen to be a thief or a liar or a rapist or a murderer? It also begs the question, if what's right is just whatever I think it is, then why should anyone care? Why not just do whatever comes naturally to each of us? If it's a matter of uh, what I think, if it's up to me to decide what's right, then whatever I decide, frankly, it's none of your business. I can do what I want. I can join the growing chorus of anyone else and everyone else who says, don't judge me. If it's up to me to decide what's right, then all I need to do is to gather enough signatures on a petition, get enough people into my social or political or ecclesiastical camp, and then together we can decide what's right and how we ought to live, what our laws are going to be, and so on. If there happen to be enough of us to force an imaginary social compact on others, then we can decide what's right for them as well. Unfortunately, as we in the U.S. and many others abroad are discovering, any society that is built upon the flimsy legal and ethical basis of human opinion, including even human majority opinion, leaves the door wide opening, open to tyranny. The tyranny of the majority. And human history is replete with social and political movements that buries the liberating law of God, which is what we have before us today, buries that, which is the law of free men, and substitutes for it the suffocating opinions of others. And so here we are today. Have we preserved the knowledge of the living and true God in our generation? Have we safeguarded and preserved true worship? Have we, in our culture, maintained a respectable work ethic? Have we remembered the Sabbath? Have we honored marriage or life or property rights or reputations? We've removed the Ten Commandments of God from our courthouses and not so much as not so much slid as went galloping headlong into this new age, a dark age, of lawlessness in which we find ourselves now. Am I overstating the case? What are we to think of nations that today don't have functioning governments, don't have functioning budgets or functioning borders? What are we to think of marriages lacking lifelong mutual commitment? Families without fathers. Music without melodies. The, sen uh, the sentencing of criminals without due restitution to their victims. 
Human culture is the flower and fruit that springs from the root of its religion. And here in the post-Christian West, we've bartered furiously for other gods, to borrow the wording of the 16th Psalm, we've bartered furiously for other gods and still can't seem to comprehend why our griefs are multiplied. And still the Lord's hand is not turned back, nor his anger turned away. Because frankly, we don't know what's right, or how we ought to live. And neither do we care. Today, we begin our study of God's moral law for all mankind. That moral law summarily comprehended, as we say, summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. Summarily comprehended, that is, as the oak tree is summarily comprehended in the acorn. Essentially, how we ought to live, how Christ Jesus lived, is all here in seed form. Listen carefully, friends. I want you to ruminate on this for a while. I want you to turn it over in your minds. I'd like you to talk it over, even debate it around your lunch table today, perhaps. Because it's important. The question is this. Do mere men, mere men, have the natural authority to make laws for ourselves? Adam and Eve didn't. Even in the garden, they didn't. Even in their innocence, God's spoken word to them was their completely sufficient law. When they tried to live by another law, the competing law of their own human opinion, they found themselves in desperate, desperate trouble. The fact of the matter is that God has spoken. He has spoken clearly. He's spoken succinctly to the children of men and his word to us has made all the difference. This law of God blows away every mere human opinion as to how we ought to live our lives. Blows it away like chaff. Blows away your opinion as to how you ought to live, and it blows away my opinion as to how we ought to live. This holy law into which we are about to delve, it blows away the voluminous and largely enslaving legislation of our U.S. House and Senate. Every overreaching executive order, every illegitimate law that's ever been legislated from the judicial bench. This law matters. The truth is, when it comes to governing the affairs of a nation, God has already answered the great questions. Our generation is too timid to ask. Here's what's right. Saith the Lord God, maker of heaven and earth. Here's what's right. Here's how you ought to live, and here's why you should care. I am Jehovah your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. You shall have no other gods before my face. So literally reads the preface to the Ten Commandments in verse 6 and the first of those ten in verse 7. But before we... Consider these verses. Let's give a moment's attention to the promulgation and the purpose of the moral law that these commandments summarize. How and why was it given? As to its promulgation to Israel, remember that Deuteronomy 5 
is Moses' review of that law first given in Exodus 20, about 38 years before. On that earlier occasion, God announced a meeting to be held with all his people gathered there at the foot of Mount Sinai. And when on the third day they then actually meet the Lord God in the fire and thick gloom of the mountain, and when he speaks directly in their hearing the Ten Commandments, the effect of his speaking to them was so devastating, they begged to hear no more except through Moses the Mediator. Their position was as if you're standing there under the thundering weight of Niagara Falls with a thimble in your hand, hoping to catch it all and not get yourself wet. That is the surpassing glory of God's immediate presence, the weightiness of his revealed will, and the impossibility of the people's situation without a mediator. They just can't bear it. And without a mediator, sinners still can't bear God's presence today. We have this instinctive fear. We have this natural aversion, this natural compulsion to put him off, to put him aside Put him out of our thoughts. Think of something else. Think of anything else because we are undone in his presence and we know it. Deep inside we know it. It's this need for mediation between God and men that Moses recounts in verse 5. I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord for you were afraid because of the fire. And did not go up the mountain. They heard with their ears from the base of the mountain only these ten commandments. And that brief encounter with the living and true God, the holy God, was all that their human constitutions could handle. That's how God promulgated the moral law to Israel. In summary, First in the hearing of everyone, and then the balance of statutes and case law through Moses the mediator, because hearing the Ten Commandments was all the people could take. But why did he do it? That's how he did it. Why did he do it? What exactly did God have in view? And here's where a lot of people, I think, go astray, go wrong in their thinking about biblical law. They think the law was given just for Israel's sake, not for the whole of mankind. There's a libertarian strain of thinking that out here in the whole wide world of Gentile humanity, all we need to govern ourselves is natural law. So, for instance, if any behavior whatsoever between any two or more parties is consensual, if there's no victim, then there's no crime. Which sounds pretty logical, certainly it sounds pretty appealing to a lot of people until you realize that that is a jurisprudence built upon sand. Once again, the sand of mere human opinion. And human opinions are no measure of the truth. Human opinions about legal matters, social matters, are the slippery slope that brings us down ultimately into lawlessness. It's only God's revealed law that unswervingly protects the innocent, that unswervingly punishes the guilty, and provides a solid legal foundation for human civilization. All human civilization. This moral law given through Israel is for humanity 
in all of its branches, not just for Israel or just for the church alone. Israel's national calling, remember, was to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. But not just to enjoy these titles and privileges ourselves. If we were called to be Israel for ourselves alone, the Lord might have simply plopped us down on to some remote tropical island somewhere to raise our children on the milk and honey of his word, far from the troubles of the unbelieving rabble across the water. But he didn't. The fact is, God settled Israel astride one of the great trade routes, the major trade route of the age. And no student of the Bible, or no student of history today, gets past middle school, I think, without learning about the Fertile Crescent. The Fertile Crescent, the cradle of civilization. And what lay between the Fertile Crescent up in the north and the great civilization of Egypt down in the south. Israel did. That little piece, that little sliver of land lay astraddle that great trade route. You can't very well go around it with the Mediterranean Sea immediately to the west and the vast Arabian desert off to the east. The main road that everyone took in those days, went straight through Israel. The great nations of the world, east and west, north and south, in their commercial travels, in their commerce, had to take that route. There's no other practical way to reach the destinations that the world wanted to reach. But here's the point. Israel's calling was to be this holy nation, this royal priesthood, this shining people for God's own possession. And her providential placement among and between those nations was the better to serve those nations. Specifically, for that brief period of time, they had those Gentile visitors among them, specifically by proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. So our laws, the laws of Israel, acknowledge and celebrate our freedom. Our obedience lived out in the presence of others is a celebration of our Redeemer. It's this glory of God that the Queen of Sheba would much later see during the reign of Solomon. We should notice that the preface or introduction in verse 5 belongs to the whole moral law. Not just as an introduction to or part of the first commandment. It's really an introduction to all the commandments. It's the moral basis of all the commandments. If we obey God... It's not in order to be redeemed. No, saved by grace already, we obey from hearts that are filled with thanksgiving that we have been redeemed. We've been redeemed. First, Jehovah graciously redeemed us from our bondage by his sheer sovereign good pleasure. And now, now he shows us how to live. And why we should care. No girl that I've ever known has ever had to pass a battery of ten impossible tests before her engagement. 
No, first of all comes the selection of the bride and then the mutual agreement to the terms of the marriage. So the preface tells us something of the history leading up to this covenant. And what it tells us is that Jehovah has chosen us and that from this day forward we belong together. The preface tells us that this covenant is a matter of mutual possession before it's a matter of anything else. Mutual belonging is the heart of the relationship. I am the Lord, thy God. Listen to that. Listen and wonder at the grace of it. Thy God. It's not, I am God over here, and you people are over there. Way over there. No. It's not, I'm doing my thing as God, and you're over there doing your thing as mere humans. He's establishing a relationship of possession. I am yours, your God, your one and only. That's the sum and substance of the covenant, isn't it? I'll be yours. You be mine. It's the refrain we hear him saying again and again, echoing down the corridors of biblical history. I'm yours. You're mine. We belong together. Marriage isn't primarily a matter of feelings, is it? But of mutual ownership and duties that are lovingly rendered. So if Jehovah is your covenant God as he says he is, then he simply has no other people but you. And if by faith you're his people, the children of Abraham, as he says you are, then how can you, how can we take our eyes off him? We pledge ourselves to be always and only his. The preface tells us of God's part in this covenant relationship. It's brief, but it's comprehensive, and there's no greater motivation to obedience than what we find here. His part in this relationship, what he brings to the marriage, is deliverance. I am the Lord thy God who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. And land of Egypt and house of slaves are just two different ways, of course, of saying essentially the same thing. But with different emphases. The first expression emphasizes to the children of Abraham the strangeness of the land of Egypt and its idols. You may have lived down there in Egypt for over 400 years but Egypt's never been your home. You may have lived there 400 years and more, but in all that time, did the gods of Egypt ever help you any more than they could help the Egyptians? Not once did the graven oxen or elephants that they trusted in save you. They never saved you from anything. They never provided you with anything, not once. And then I called my servant Moses from the burning bush. I sent him to you. And each one of the ten plagues by which I brought you out was a particular, distinct, deliberate humiliation of the vain idols that the Egyptians served. I, the Lord your God, brought you out of their strange land, piled high with their worthless idols. And then he adds, out of the house of slaves. Here the emphasis falls not, of course, on the idolatry of the land, but the bondage of it. There in Egypt, 
They took your newborn sons out of your arms and summarily slew them for the double crime of being a Hebrew and being a boy. There in Egypt they took your daughters and made of them whatever they wished. There in Egypt you had these impossible tasks, bricks to make, without any straw to make them. You had these massive monuments you had to build, monuments to dead idols and their dead and dying devotees. There in Egypt you had a whip for your back and nothing on which to cling for hope except the dim memory of an ancient promise made to an ancestor many long, long generations ago. And then at the right time, I, the Lord your God, delivered you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. The unraveling and fall of Egypt and the redeeming blood of a Passover lamb, that's what the Lord your God brings to the covenant. Our part in the covenant follows in verses 7 to 21. Our part is now to live as the free men that we are. No longer slaves to men, no longer slaves to the commandments and regulations and thought processes and opinions of other men. No longer slaves to their useless idols and the useless religions dreamed up to go along with those idols. And Jesus would drive this home point Uh, this, this one point home many years later when he said if the sun sets you free you are free indeed the moral law simply shows us what this freedom that is ours as God's covenant people what this freedom looks like it's not anarchy It's not everyone doing what's right in his own eyes. It's a life lived subject to the one living and true God who redeems and feeds and loves and cares for us. It's forsaking all others besides him, forsaking all those phony plastic fabrications and philosophies that somehow threaten to find their way back into our hearts, somehow threaten to enslave us all over again. Freedom begins with the first commandment. It's first in order of appearance, and it's first in logical arrangement and importance. All ten commandments stem from their one great preface of gracious redemption, God's redeeming us. And the latter nine of those commandments all flow seamlessly from the first of them, the fountainhead of them. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, what do you suppose these other gods might be against which we're warned? It's a broader array than you might at first imagine, and as our own times indicate, it's much closer to our daily lives, much more sinister. Other gods can be those demons and delusions behind all of the graven, molten, carved, painted, and drawn images and statuary and pictures in which stupid, unthinking men trust can be those things they can be the mental images that are drilled drilled into impressionable young minds through years of Bible picture books and Sunday school curricula more on this matter when we get to the second commandment but we need to ask ourselves when we think about 
our mental images of God. What does the wind look like? We know the living and true God by what he does, not by any physical form. Even when he appeared at Sinai, Moses is very careful to point out in Deuteronomy 4 and verse 12, you heard the sound of words, but saw no form, only a voice. Other gods can be philosophical commitments that we haven't yet brought under the scrutiny of God's word. Ideas that are simply out of compliance with God's word. Such notions as fortune and luck and karma wishing upon a star, and so on. Superstitions. Other gods can be unsatisfied wishes and wants. They can be people. They can even be the best of people. Emotions and feelings can take God's place in our hearts, edging him out. Money and bank accounts and investments and all the toys and trinkets of life that seem to offer greater comfort, greater real comfort than the living God. They become other gods to us. And let me be as pointedly clear as I can be in view of what we read from Daniel chapter 3. Civil governments can become other gods. Governments are readily are routinely ready to step into this role, taking what belongs to God alone, including the tithe of our increase, and more than the tithe. And this, of course, was Nebuchadnezzar's fatal flaw, to compel people to bow down to the government and to its images and to its agents. Daniel's three friends refused. They refused. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't even need to give you an answer about this. They refused. Mordecai in the days of Queen Esther refused. Christians in the days of Caesar refused. And we must refuse to give our civil governments the honor that belongs to God alone. Civil governments have no biblical authorization, much less actual ability, to give us each day our daily bread or otherwise care for us and our families. They cannot protect us to the extent that so many Americans imagine they will. Can those who don't know you, who don't love you, who don't care for you, can they properly manage your family's health care, for instance. I remember years ago filling out multiple forms, both in person and online, multiple forms over the course of two years I did this, simply trying to terminate an Army Reserve term life insurance policy on Mary Lou. I had never asked for the policy, I didn't need the policy. The army seemed to think that I do. And so every month they deducted the premium for this life insurance policy that we didn't want. Civil government may be an important avenue of Christian service, 
but it makes for a terribly inferior, inefficient, and bungling God. Remember COVID. The useless masks, the damaging, socially damaging quarantines, the harmful vaccines. But even the best and most responsible of civil governments are an unspeakably shabby substitute for the one true God and his Messiah. The compiler of the book of Psalms considered it important enough to put right up front in the second psalm, right at the beginning of the Psalter. Therefore, kings, be wise, give ear, hearken, judges of the earth, serve the Lord with godly fear, mingle trembling with your mirth, kiss the Son, his wrath to turn, lest you perish in the way, for his anger soon will burn. Blessed are all that on him stay. Which brings us in conclusion to our one great need. Governments can't supply that need, nor can any other false god we might conjure up in our sin-corrupted imaginations. Those gods are simply incompetent to do for our souls and for our homes and families what must be done. Our one great need is the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ the Redeemer to be active in our minds and hearts and our homes and our churches and our communities. Absent the influence of the Holy Spirit, we cannot and we will not honor the living and true God and our covenant with him as we should. Our one great need is that by his spirit we might love him, him alone, with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And live in the breathless moment-by-moment -moment assurance that my beloved is mine and I am his. That's how we should live and that's why we should care. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've made yourself known to us as the one and the only. That you have made known to us our Lord Jesus Christ, the chiefest among 10,000. I ask, O oh Lord, that we might live in this sense of deep and abiding love for you, that we might have eyes for none else. Grant this, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, for we know our own natural waywardness. Spare us, we pray, and love us, and draw us close to you, the only true God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.